Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. So we're beginning a series. Um, We're going to look at uh, ten truths that changed the world. They changed the world largely because they changed people. They changed individuals. And so over the next ten weeks, we're going to look at um, some various passages that uh, primarily during the period of the Reformation, the 1500s into the 1600s, texts that were uh, kind of uncovered, recovered, um, discovered, and um, we're going to look at a number of different passages. And so the first one is really uh, the passage. If you were going to, if you were going to say what, what passage had the greatest impact upon the church through the period of the Reformation, it's Romans one verses sixteen and seventeen, because these two verses changed Martin Luther. Provided for him, as we'll read just a few of his remarks about this, provided what he termed a breakthrough in his life. Now listen, you have to, you've got, and I'll tell you, I saw a little bit of a special this week. PBS has a special right now on Martin Luther. You can go out to their website and just Google Martin Luther PBS. It's a two-hour documentary on Martin Luther's life. They interview a number of folks Throughout it, uh, one of one of the interesting people that they interview is uh, Cardinal Dolan, and um, and it, it's fascinating because I've never heard a ne- never heard a uh, someone in his position from the Catholic Church say that the the church during the time of Luther was indeed corrupt. It, it's remarkable. He says it not once. He says it three times throughout the course of the two-hour special that Martin Luther had good cause. Um, so, uh, anyways, um, kind of a fascinating, but wonderful documentary. If you want to understand more in-depth what was going on with Luther, what was taking place in the church, why the Reformation, why this change, what happened for Luther, uh, that's a good place to go. Another good place to go would be uh, Jim Hildebrand's uh, class on Romans 1-7. to um, and I asked Jim this morning, he said, are, are, I said, Jim, you're starting today. Are you going to cover Romans 1, 16 and 17? And he said, we are. So apologies to those of you who are in the class. You're getting a double dose today. Um, but that's okay, because if you were going to get a double dose of something, Romans 1, 16 and 17 is the place to get it. Um, so let's read this passage, and then uh, and then let's talk about it. Romans 1. I'm going to actually start in verse 14. Romans 1, 14 to 17. Here's what Paul says. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. 
a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word because it indeed illumines our way. It shows us what heretofore has been darkened. And so we thank you. And we pray now as we come to it that you'll give us eyes and ears and hearts ready to receive it. Father, let our meditations on it and the words of my lips concerning it be acceptable in your sight. And would it produce the intended harvest which you've ordained for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. It is those two verses, 16 and 17, that provided for Luther the breakthrough. I want to read you a little section um, that he wrote concerning that. And he said, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation, Luther said, was that although I was an impeccable monk, and Luther was, by all accounts, a monk among monks, and he says, although I was an impeccable monk, I'm sure Luther said that humbly, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience. And I had no confidence that my merit would assuage God. So Luther is saying, I saw God, I saw in Scripture that He was a just God. I saw that He punished the unjust, that is, the sinner. And then he says, I, I knew God to be that person. And, and, and although my situation was, I was a really good guy. I, was, I had given my life. He had had the experience in the storm where the lightning bolt struck. And Luther said, if you save me, I'll go into the ministry. And he made it through the storm and he went into the ministry and he became a monk. And he was a really good monk. He was a, he was a great student. And he became a student of the Word. And Luther says, although I was really a good monk, although I had given my life over, he says, I knew before God I was a sinner. I knew before God that I had this sin. And, and, and it's recounted that Luther would go into the confessional and he would be confessing sin and he would stay in there forever and the other monks would, you know, why isn't Luther tending to his chores while he's in the confessional? And he would say, while I was in there confessing sin, before long, I was confessing sins that I had committed while I was in the booth confessing sins. And so he says, I stood before God and I knew in my heart of hearts I wasn't right. 
I was still a sinner before him, and I had no confidence that my merit, okay, that's all the good stuff he's been doing, that my merit would amount to nothing before God. It could not turn away God's wrath from me. That's what Luther saw. He goes on. He said, therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather I hated and I murmured against him night and day. I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that through gift and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. And thereupon I felt myself to be reborn, to have gone through open doors into paradise. When I saw that law meant one thing and gospel meant another, he says, I broke through. Luther had a breakthrough in his life. And the breakthrough was, he realized, it wasn't, he wasn't going to be right with God because of anything he would do, ever. He was going to be right with God because of what God had done for him. Now, as we begin, I would just ask you, how would you describe your breakthrough? If I were to ask you, What has been the breakthrough for you? How would you describe that? What terms would you use? You might want to just jot down a note. What what would that look like for you? What is, how would you describe your breakthrough? I'll tell you about mine. My breakthrough happened my first year of seminary. Now, I believe I, I believe that I was trusting by faith the Lord before this moment. But this moment gave clarity to my faith that I had never had. And it deals with this passage and a couple of others, Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Those three passages together formed my breakthrough, my first year of seminary, in a class that was titled Modern Roman Catholic Theology, taught by a guy named Robert Strimple at Westminster Seminary. And there in that class... Dr. Strimple gave me, and us, but for me, it was a very personal experience, the Roman Catholic view of what it means to be justified before God and the Protestant view of what it means to be justified before God. We're going to talk about what those look like as we work our way through this morning, but it was in that class, 1995-96, that I had my breakthrough, where the gospel shone so brightly that that in the starkest terms, I finally understood it wasn't about me. It was about him and what he had done. Where was your breakthrough? What does your breakthrough look like? If, If I were to ask you, what does the gospel look like? What, what is the gospel? How would you describe that? We'll look at that more. It's the phrase that Paul offers here, the righteous 
will live by faith. To understand that, let's look at three points. First, the nature of the gospel, what it is, the meaning of the gospel, what it does or doesn't do, and third, the ending of the gospel, where it leads. So what is the nature of the gospel? What is it? The Apostle Paul uses the word gospel a lot in Romans. Specifically, right here in the first chapter, it gets used a fair bit. Nearly every verse he's, he's utilizing the word gospel. We hear that a lot. We use that a lot. It's good church language. What does it mean? What is the gospel? And the gospel, in in the Greek language, the original language it's pinned in is actually a combination of a prefix and then the word angelos or angelion. Um, and you take those two together, right? It's euangelion, and you, you put them together and you have good news. Um, you think of a, uh, a eulogy. A eulogy, if you were going to break that down, would be you logos, a good word. Okay, so at a funeral, someone stands up and they give you a eulogy, and it's a good word about the person who is deceased. In this instance, it is good news about an event that has happened. That's that's that is the way that we understand news, and that really is what this is. It's it's a good message, a good report, good news. And that good news is at the heart of the Christian message. Now, we say that, what exactly is the good news? What is the good report? What is the substance of that news? That's the question we want to ask. Because for Luther, understanding that gospel was the breakthrough. So what gave him the breakthrough? And that's where we want to go. That's what we want to ask. What was that breakthrough? Now, if I were to go out onto the street, and if I were to ask the average Joe, hey, what does it mean to be a Christian? I think what I'm probably likely to hear is something along the lines of, well, it means you follow Jesus. You do what Jesus did. You live like Jesus. Somebody may sum it up as, uh, well... Yeah, what would Jesus do? Um, they would probably add to that, to be a Christian means to love your neighbor. Okay? The, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's the essence of Christianity. If you ask a regular Joe on the street, that is probably what they would say. That, that would be the breakdown of what they would consider to be the essence of the good news. Now let me ask you a question. Does that sound like good news to you? Is it good news if I tell you, you need to live like Jesus? That doesn't strike me as good news. That strikes me actually is actually probably pretty difficult to accomplish. That would be very a very challenging thing to do. So, Placing that burden on someone is clearly not good news. Um, and when you hear that, when, when, when you hear that that's how someone may respond or 
if you even thought that that was the content of the gospel, your response, some of you are, are going to probably respond with, okay, well, you know, kind of a shrug. Kind of a, I'll, I, I get it. It's a good, you know, it's something to aspire towards. It's something maybe to, to move towards, to be a, a good person and to be good to my neighbors and to, you know, love those people around me that are hard to love. But you're not going to be overly excited about that burden, most likely. Somebody pointed out there are probably three responses to that kind of a good news um, position. One is to shrug it off, okay? Challenging, but doesn't really motivate you. The other is to be bugged by it, which is what Martin Luther was, right? Martin Luther felt the weight of that kind of oppression. To tell you to live like Jesus, to tell you to go out and do what Jesus did, to follow in his steps, is not good news. It's dreadful news because you will never be able to do it. And you will fall woefully short. And he isn't just there to clean up the woefully short part, okay? You'll be a miserable failure at trying to follow Jesus. And the third part is the pharisaical response. And what was their response to that kind of news? Got it covered. I did that. Right? That's the pharisaical response. The pharisaical response is, I'm doing good to my neighbor. I did good to him in the middle of the storm. I, I love my neighbor. I take care of my neighbor. Take soup over there. So those would be the probably the, the options that you have to shrug it off, to be bugged indefinitely about it, to be really struck to the core about it, and then to be smugly aware that you've been doing all of that and more. Now, when we talk about the good news, I ask you that question. If you were going to describe the good news, what is it? When you roll that over in your mind or when you jot down that answer, let me ask you a question. Does it include anything that you have done? Because if it does, it's not good news. It's bad news, dreadful news. What is the earth-shattering news that woke Martin Luther up and changed the world. Listen. We have... Who knows what would have happened if Martin Luther had not come along? But the church, the world, the Western world in particular, who knows what it looks like, but it doesn't look like it does now. Because Luther's awakening changed everything. It changed the way we approach our work. It changed the way we approach God. It changed the way we approached one another. It changed the way that society worked. Because the gospel revolutionized the relationship that we have with God. And so it changed everything. So let's talk about the meaning of the gospel. What it does and what it doesn't do. What Luther finally understood was that the righteousness that was being revealed from God wasn't there to crush him. 
it was there to save him. What he finally understood was that the righteousness revealed was what was credited to us by faith. Because he was reading the passage. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. When Martin Luther read that, it scared him. The righteousness of God is revealed. And when the righteousness of God is revealed, what does that do to me? Well, it undoes me because I'm not that righteous. And God is. And so that undid him until he understood the last line. For in the gospel, righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. And there is where the light bulb went off for Luther. Ah, the righteousness that is revealed is also the righteousness that is mine by faith. And that's where things begin to change for Luther. He put it together. He began to put the whole of Scripture together. He went to places like Romans 5, 1 and 2. There Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about that. So here's Luther, he's living his life, but he realizes every single day he's fully aware of the sinner that he is. And he comes on to this idea that the righteousness is ours by faith, and that righteousness justifies us before God so that we have peace with God. That is amazing. Because Luther knew no peace. He had never known peace. In his mind, his conscience constantly condemned him because he, he, he knew his sin and he knew that God was holy. So where was, the, where was the peace to come from? And the peace comes from the fact that we are justified through faith. You see, the gospel reveals a righteousness from God that we receive by faith. Uh, that term that we read, that we read there in Romans 5, the term justified, that's not a term that we use a lot. We don't talk about that a whole lot. So what is that? And let's think about it this way. Justification is an act of God. And in that act, God changes the nature of the relationship. Okay? He doesn't change you. He changes the nature of the relationship. That's different. It's different than transforming you. He's just changing the nature of the relationship he has with you. And how does he do that? Two parts. I think it's, I don't remember, shorter catechism, question 32, 33, somewhere in there, right? Uh, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sin and counts us as righteous because of the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us and received by faith alone. So let's break that down. First, he pardons our sin. Now think about that. You know what a pardon is? A pardon is when you've been found guilty 
Okay? So you're guilty of the crime, but the person in power, the judge or the president or a governor, takes your sentence and they scratch through the sentence, guilty, and they write, not guilty. That's what a pardon is. A pardon is wiping away the guilty sentence and giving you the non-guilty sentence. Okay? Now let me ask you. In that instance, are you still guilty of the crime? Yes. But the judge is counting you as what? Not guilty. He's changed the relationship. Your relationship now to the law is you stand in good stead. Okay? Now, on account of Christ... You and I are pardoned for our sin. That is, the guilty verdict that has been rendered against us is swept away, and the not guilty verdict is given to us. Now, I don't know about you, but that's the beginning of good news. That is radical news. You mean, I was guilty, but in an instant... You declared me not guilty? Yeah. So now God is looking at you as a pardoned sinner. Still guilty. On the books, on anybody's, right? (laughs) People are going to be looking at you, snickering about you. Do you know? But on the books, you'll be not guilty. Here's the next part. Remember, it's a change in status, not a change in your person. Get that? That's what's radical about this. It's on the books. Here's the second part. He accepts you as righteous in His sight. See, we usually get the first part and we talk about the blood of Christ and He washes away all of our sin. We sing nothing but the blood. Okay? We're really good on the blood side. We've got the blood side down. Generally. But what about the second side? The flip side? Because this is really good news. Right? If you were merely pardoned, now you're just still, right? Still just an average citizen. What, what, you know, what's amazing about your status now? Is there anything more amazing about your status than there was before? No. You're just not guilty. But he does more than just declare you not guilty. He declares you, he declares you to have committed every amazingly good act that Jesus himself ever committed, ever did. Huh? Yeah. Because he accepts the righteousness of Christ as yours. See that? That's the second side of the coin. He doesn't just get you to the even line. He gets you into the stratosphere. He writes your name in heaven above. As if you had committed every righteous good deed that Jesus himself had committed. Now, it's written next to your name. Somebody described it as, right, uh, you know, you're, you're now suddenly 
counted as a king. How? Exactly the way that the pardon happened is exactly the way that the righteous deeds part happens. And here's the way that takes place. If you've got your Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians 5.21. We've looked at this passage before. I've told you this is one of those passages that I love for good reason. Paul says there, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who had no sin to what? Be sin. What does that mean? That means that when Jesus went to the cross, okay, and he died for your sin, are we all on the same page? You've got that. When he died on the cross for your sin, God poured out his wrath on Jesus for every sin of every person who would ever believe in him. Okay? Because you're saved. When we say, I'm saved, what are you saved from? Remember what Martin Luther was running from. He was running from the wrath and justice of God. You're saved from God. Because what you deserve as a sinner, what we deserve as sinners, is the wrath of God. And so Jesus saves us from that. And how does he do it? He goes to the cross as our substitute. And so God pours out his wrath on Jesus there on the cross, and he pays the penalty for your sin and my sin as we trust in him. Now, here's the next, good, here's the next part of that good news. So on the cross, Jesus was treated as if he had committed your sin and my sin. Was he a sinner? It's a really fundamental question. The answer is no. Look at what Paul says. God made him who knew no sin to be sin. Jesus wasn't a sinner, but God treated him as if he was. Now let's flip it over. Because the next good part of the good news is, at the same time he's placing our sin on Jesus, he's crediting our sin to Jesus, he puts it in the books, he also puts into the book of life the righteousness of Christ next to your name. He treats you and I as if we had committed every good deed that Jesus had ever committed. Now let me ask you, are you righteous? You're no more righteous than Jesus was a sinner on that cross at the moment that he's declaring you righteous. That is unfathomable good news, right? That the righteousness that God requires of me, he gives to me. It's so simple that people, Paul says, trip over it. They can't go there. You mean that the righteousness God requires of me, he gives to me? That's what Paul says. Now, now that you're thinking along those lines, listen to it again. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. See, it doesn't have anything to do with what you're doing. It has to do with your faith, your trust, your 
belief that God indeed pardons your sin and treats you as if you were righteous on account of the person and work of Christ. That's the good news. That's the breakthrough. Otherwise, what are you doing? You're pounding the ground trying to be good, which is what Martin Luther was doing. And all you're doing is running in circles. And half of the time you're thinking to yourself, I didn't have my quiet time today. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I didn't. Oh, no. I often ask people, if you, I say it in you know, really crude terms, something like, so if you were in my office and you cussed me up one side and down the other, and then you walked out and you got hit by a Mack truck, which is what you would deserve if you did that to me. And you went out into the street and got hit by a Mack truck. Where would you go? And you didn't have, you had not asked for forgiveness. Where would you go? And I am so saddened when, when people tell me, well, I'd go to hell, preacher. No, you would not. Not if you've trusted in Christ. Why? Because He's pardoned you. He's already looked at you and counted you as righteous in His sight. Are you a sinner today? Yes. But He declares you righteous. That's why it's not the rat race you're making it out to be. That's why for Luther there was joy and freedom. This is a breakthrough. Telling me to go live like Jesus and to do good works is not a breakthrough. That's a noose. And Luther had this breakthrough. I want you to turn one more passage. We've got just a couple more minutes and we're done. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. Actually, it may be, uh, we'll look at verse 8. Hold on. We've been there before, but in this context, it helps to be there again. Philippians chapter 3, let's look at verse, starting in verse 7. Paul says this, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider lost. So think of that statement Luther said, right? I had all this stuff that I was doing. I was a good monk, okay? But that didn't matter. So Paul says, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. And then this statement, and this is what you got to get, that I may gain Christ, verse 9, and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes where? From God and is by faith. You hear what Paul's saying? And not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from God and is by faith. Friends, that's the good news. That's what you, when you hear gospel, think righteousness, gift, pardon, freedom. Where does it lead us? Because we could go on and on about that. What is the ending of the gospel? Where does it lead? Luther writes this about his breakthrough. 
These are in his opening remarks on his uh, commentary or book of sermons concerning the, uh, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. Here's what he says. Listen. He says this. Christ desires to have our hearts so free and divested of our own righteousness and wisdom. Okay? Listen. Christ desires to have our hearts so free and divested of our own righteousness and wisdom that for our sins we fear no denial of grace and for our virtues we seek no glory or vain satisfaction. That is an amazing statement. Christ desires to have our hearts so free and divested of our own righteousness and wisdom that for our sins we don't feel as if God is going to withdraw His grace, His love, His mercy from us. And for our virtues, for the good things that we do, we have no reason to believe that He's going to shine His face any more gloriously upon us than He's already done in Christ. You see that? Now think about that for everyday living. Think about that for the way in which you go about looking at yourself day in and day out. That, remember, is that good news that it one and the same time can do either a great humbling upon your heart when you start feeling like, man, I've got this together and I'm walking the walk and I'm conquering and I'm living the victorious Christian life and, and I'm going down the road, right? When you're feeling really good and you're thinking, man, God must really be excited about who I am. What does the gospel do? The gospel comes and says, you were so bad Christ had to die for you. And the righteousness of Christ had to be given to you. Oh, that'll humble you in a New York minute. But then at the very same time when you wake up and it's been, it's been a month of Sundays and you haven't had a quiet time and you feel about as far from God as you've ever felt and you're thinking to yourself, I just can't do this anymore. I just don't even know if I believe this stuff anymore. God, where are you? I love you, but I just don't know what this is, what's going on here. He says to you, I loved you so much. Jesus died for you. Now what does that do? That ought to lift you right on up, right? I've given you a pardon and the righteousness of Christ and made you my own. Wow. Made you, me. And that gospel lifts you right back up. Now, there are a lot of implications for this. Paul addresses all of them. Chief among them is, you know, when people hear this, when this breakthrough happens for the first time, what are you talking about, Willis? You get that moment where you're like, hold on a second. And here's the chief question, and Paul answers it in Romans 6. Right? And the question is this. If His grace is that amazing, If His grace is that good, why? I can go on living. I can just go on sinning. And what does Paul say? By no means. How can we go on living 
in sin any longer if we've died to sin. See, because here's, the, here's where it ends. It ends not only in a declaration, it ends in a transformation. You see, that pardon and that declaration of who you are in Christ is a declaration from the throne of God. But it results in a transformation. And that's why Luther and the Reformers said that salvation is not by faith, is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. It always results in the transformation of the object. And so we live in that knowledge that God receives us because of the righteousness of Christ, not because of anything we've done. Harry Reid always says, right, that gospel is the foundation, the formation, and the motivation for the Christian life. Let's pray. Father, thank you.